1 Corinthians 13. And as you're turning there, I was thinking, I was talking to my wife this morning, reminding myself of, you know, over the years, I've done so many weddings. I mean, more than I could count, honestly. And there's been some funny stories about the, the different weddings. Um, I actually chronicled them in a book uh, that I wrote some time ago. And, um, and, and one of the stories that stands out to me, you know, these couples, you know, we, we'd have these weddings. And I remember back in the day, maybe some of you have been married as long as we have, or maybe longer, there was a big thing going around in the wedding ceremony. It seems like there's different generations now that do different things at weddings. You know, there's the, the sand covenant, you know, where you dump sand into, I don't know if that's a California thing, but uh, you dump sand and it all mixed together and, and it's supposed to be symbolizing your lives are entwined and that you have to separate the grains of sand. To, you know, uh, there was a, the threefold cord, they actually, you know, had a cord and they tied it and that was cool. And, uh, but back in our day, it had a lot to do with candles, candle lighting, unity candle. Now, any of you have the unity candle at your wedding? Let me just see. All right, so I'm tracking. Unity candle. Yeah, beautiful, right? The moms come up, they light the individual candles for their babies, you know. They go and sit back down, and, those, and there's one middle candle, you know, which represents the two becoming one. Beautiful ceremony. Now, we told the ladies, specifically, who had veils. <laughs> when it comes time to do the unity candle, listen, let, let him, let the groom blow out your candle just to be safe. But, you know, you're in the moment. Like, you, you're, you're somewhere else. I mean, it's just magical. And, and you're not thinking. It's just everything's happening so fast. And I was standing there at the altar. The couple came forward and came time for the unity candle. I'll never forget, as the bride had the candle in front of her with the open flame. And she went, she had a veil. And she went to blow out the candle. And her veil came forward, obviously. And the veil came out and hit the flame. And I watched as the bride's eyes crossed. <laughs> and the veil started to go in flames. And instinctively, as she was like this, I blew out the candle and her face at the same time. <laughs> and kept going. And uh, <laughs> that could have been bad. Hairspray. I mean, I don't even like to think about what could have happened. That was a classic. Another candle incident was uh, a couple came up. Same thing. I don't know what it was about the unity candle, but no one's really doing those anymore. Uh, but this particular guy came up, probably the most nervous groom I have ever seen in my life. I mean, I just, he, he had glasses and, and, and they were kind of, and he sweat like so much. I mean, like buckets. And this guy was just like, he got, he could rinse him out. He, I don't know, he's just super nervous. So we come up to the time for, the, and again, the unity candle. And, and so he, I told him beforehand, listen, you blow out the unity candle, okay? That's, I told him about the incident that I just explained. Okay, no problem. So he bends down to blow out the unity candle, and he blows out all the candles, and the young man looked up to me. His glasses were all crooked now. He looks up like, the look on his face, I will never forget it. It was like I just ruined the entire ceremony. Sweat coming down. 
And I immediately said, hey, it's your wedding, not your birthday. <laughs> and no kidding, somebody from the audience walked up on stage with a lighter and went <laughs> and relit it and walked back down. That was interesting. That, that happened. So many different things. I remember another couple, you know, they, they, uh, they, we were back in the back, and I tried to keep the groom, you know, relaxed. I mean, this is, you know, because it's a lot, you know, it's a lot of pressure. And both of this, this, this couple, they were both in the military. And uh, she was in a branch of the military, and he was in a branch of the military. And so we're back there, and we're jovial, we're joking around, we're laughing, <laughs> you know, just keeping it light. I'm like, okay, we're good, we're good, we're good. And then all of a sudden, I mean like out of nowhere, the ugliest cry you have ever seen. I mean, it was like, we were laughing, <laughs> like, oh my goodness, like he just broke down. We hadn't even started. He is breaking down in the back about this whole thing. I'm like, wow, this is going to be something. And so... We get out to the platform. This is military. He's there. She comes down the aisle. He's like, Huzzah! like, it's <laughs> just like, it's, I'm telling you, it was the ugliest cry I've ever seen. And then we get up there. She's straight faced. <laughs> I do. I do. And he's like, it was so funny. We just saw them. Uh, we were at a conference uh, out in Oahu. They live out in Oahu. They have how many kids? 11? 11 kids. They've been busy. They, they have a, their favorite verse is be fruitful and multiply, apparently. They took that literally and uh, beautiful family. So uh, just so many great experiences through the years. I could go on, but I won't. We're going to get into the text. And uh, so funny. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you look with me, beginning in verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, if I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but if I have not love, it profits me nothing. For love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you today uh, that you have given unto us a clear picture of what love is supposed to be, what it looks like. And I pray that as we consider this today, that you would teach us, Lord, what it is to love in word and in truth, Lord, in deed and in action. Lord, help us in this way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the attributes that is used in Scripture to describe the character and the nature of God found, is found in 1 John 4, 8, where it says, God is love. And within the Old, as well as the New Testament of the Bible, we see evidence of God's love. When the nation of Israel was set apart to be God's chosen people, 
Moses reminded the nation in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. You were least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. Later on, when the nation of Israel had begun to drift away from their relationship with the Lord, a prophet was raised up by the name of Jeremiah. And he spoke a word to the people in Jeremiah 31 and verse 4. And he said, the Lord has appeared to me of old saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And therefore with loving kindness, I have drawn you. When you come to the New Testament, we discover that not only did God declare his love for us, but he demonstrated his love for us. For the Bible tells us in John 3, 16, God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. During his earthly ministry, Jesus preached many powerful messages, one of which was the Sermon on the Mount. And it was during that discourse that Jesus spoke on the subject of love. And he said in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it's been said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Oh, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those that love you, what profit is that to you? Even the tax collectors do the same. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was approached by a lawyer, asked him a very important question And he said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, the entire Old Testament, the law, the prophets, could be summed up with one word, love. Prior to his death, resurrection and ascension. Jesus gave his disciples some very important instructions. In John 13, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Ephesus, shared how he was praying for them. And one of the things that he prayed for them specifically, found in Ephesians chapter 3, he said that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and height to know the love of Christ which surpasses, goes beyond your ability, your knowledge to understand, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul was praying that the church would know God's love in the greatest way possible. Because when you know God's love personally, that changes your life. It was Paul that would say concerning his own ministry that it's the love of Christ that compels me or constrains me. The love of God at work in his life was motivation for the ministry. And so here Paul is writing to this church in Corinth that had all of the gifts in operation. In fact, in the very first chapter, he commends the church saying, you have all the gifts in operation. Could you imagine going to a church where all of the spiritual gifts are firing? All of them are in operation. Now they had problems. They were using them out of order and something else that they lacked was love. 
He would say in Ephesians, or earlier in the epistle, pardon me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he would say that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. One of the greatest confirmations of a healthy Christian, and may I say to you this morning, a healthy marriage is the love of Jesus, being present, being seen. When considering the word love, it's important to understand what the Bible means when it uses that word. You know, the world has a definition for love, and it looks much different than the definition that we have in the word of God. The ancient Greek language had four words that were used for love. By the way, the New Testament translated into Greek or from the Greek into English, I should say. And so there were four words that were used. They're rather expressive. In different contexts, they mean different things. For example, you had storge, which is a word describing a family-oriented kind of love. A love for one's parents, a love for one's brothers, sisters, etc. The bond between a family. Then there was the word eros, a Greek word used to describe a sensual kind of love. Then there was phileo, that referred to a brotherly love, most often exhibited in close friendship. And then there was the highest word of love, the word agape, the most powerful, the, the noblest type of love. It is a sacrificial love. Agape is more than a feeling. It's an act of the will. It's unconditional. It is sacrificial. It's the love that God is. It's the love that God has. And by means of the work of the Holy Spirit, when we yield, that's the fruit of the Spirit. It is the caring, self-sacrificing commitment which shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one that is loved. It is a love that impels one to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of the object of the person being loved. The Bible tells us to be rooted and grounded in love. The Bible says to speak the truth in love. It says to walk in love. It says to abound in love, put on love, unified in love, fervent in love, stir one another up to love and good works. Keep yourselves in the love of God. You understand, this is an emphasis throughout the scriptures. And by putting on and walking in and speaking of and stirring up and keeping ourselves in this agape love of God, the church is edified, Jesus is glorified, and the world sees genuine Christianity. And where are they going to see that? They're going to see that in the marriage when the Bible tells us that our marriages are to be a picture of Christ's love for his church and the church's response to Christ. On the other hand, if you're lacking this kind of love, regardless of how gifted you are, it, it just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. In fact, Paul tells us here, we just read it, that we're nothing without love. He begins the chapter by expressing some of the more visible gifts that were in operation in the church in Corinth, probably tongues, prophecy, benevolence, faith. These are the ones that he mentions. And although these could be in operation apart from love, they are really meaningless. He says in verse 1, if I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but if I don't have love, I become like a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. How irritating would it be right now if I just grabbed a stick and started beating on those cymbals instead of talking to you? He'd say, stop that. What are you doing? I'm just showing you how irritating it could be. Here it says... Paul said you could, you could have this beautiful, eloquent prayer language. You could communicate in the most eloquent ways and, and be so anointed and things could be coming out of your mouth that are beautiful in, in, ear, in the earshot of people listening, but without love, it's just nothing more than an irritation. You know, in this culture, it's interesting, pagan worshipers in their ceremonies in worship to Dionysus and Cybele, they would clang cymbals and blow trumpets uncontrollably. It was extremely loud and irritating. 
Just a side note, have you ever brought something home for your child that you wished you hadn't? An instrument of some sort? Why did we get that for him? Like, is he really going to learn to play the cymbals? I mean, come on. The little flute? It's like, I don't know what happened to it, baby. It broke. It broke. <laughs> no. Paul is saying, your gift is no better than the heathen practice down the street if you don't have love. In verse 2, he says, and though I have the gift of prophecy, if I understand all mysteries, all knowledge, I have all faith, I can remove mountains. But if I don't have love, he says, I am nothing. I'm nothing. Of course, the religious leaders of the day, they had knowledge, but no love for the people. The gift of prophecy and operation, speaking forth the word of God, seen in preaching and teaching. If this gift is used without love, it doesn't mean anything. People don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. You can have the best three-point sermon, five-point sermon, however many points you have. Hopefully you have at least one. Speaking all the truth that you desire, but if your words aren't spoken with grace and truth, they may cut off the ears of those who should be hearing and listening. You could have great faith. You could say, oh man, I trust God. I have faith. I have faith. Great. Do you have love? I don't. Well, you're nothing. (laughs) There you go. He said, you could have benevolence with love. You could, I could bestow all my goods to feed the poor. I could dig wells for people in Africa. I could take things over to foreign countries and people. I could, listen, but if your motivation for doing that is, is not love, if it's simply out of a selfish desire to feel needed rather than the agape love of God, then it profits you nothing. If things are given with the intent of giving along with the gift a smug moral lecture on why the person whom you are giving this to is so fortunate to have someone like you in their life. And you better be grateful. I mean, it profits you nothing. Giving from a legalistic obligation or desire of the praise and recognition of man is worthless. You should just keep it. Reminds me of Ananias and Sapphira. They weren't motivated by love. They were motivated by fame. They wanted to be known in the church. It's the wrong motivation. Doing things to be seen by men. Doing things to somehow get some kind of position or recognition. That's not love. He also says you could give your body to be burned. He talks about martyrdom without love. Though I give my body to be burned, if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. There could have been those like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel offering themselves up to be burned or some in the congregation in Corinth that have been, may have been courting persecution for simply the idea of self-display. That's pride. When our sacrifices and service are offered up out of wanting to make a name for ourselves or wanting to be recognized at how much of a servant we really are, there's a lack of love. And what is motivating is, is me, not Jesus in me. So we come to realize that with everything that we do, love is to be involved. It's to be the driving force. Now Paul tells us here in this chapter, and just a few verses we want to consider together, he actually pins 15 characteristics that make up what love is, as well as what this agape love is not. Here's what it is, here's what it isn't. And as Paul takes these, it's like he takes 15 artistic strokes on a canvas and begins to paint a picture so that when we're done, honestly, the picture really looks like Jesus. Because you could take this list right here and you could do a little test. I'll do it for myself. You could put your name in everywhere it says love. See how far you get. 
John suffers long and is kind. Okay, moving on. But I, my name doesn't fit that well there. I mean, I wanted to, but the name of Jesus fits perfectly in here. He, he is the personification of love. So let's look at these characteristics and see how we do. First of all, it says love, notice this, suffers long. It's long-suffering. The Greek word used here describes manifesting a state of emotional calm or quietness in the face of provocation, misfortune, or unfavorable circumstances. To put it another way, when someone's pressing your buttons, you're long-suffering. Do you, do you press one another's buttons as a couple? You know what the buttons are, don't you? My wife knows what my buttons are. I know what hers are. And there are moments when you, you, the Spirit of God's saying, don't press it. Don't, don't press it. You're like, oh, the red one? <laughs> bah! Now what? Long way back, man. Do not press the button. It literally means long-tempered. Love has no fuse waiting to be lit, no retaliation. It implies being inconvenienced over and over again and not retaliating. Does that come natural to anybody? I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Counsel me, please. It doesn't work. I need the spirit. It speaks of being taken advantage of and still loving not repaying evil for evil. It reacts with goodness toward those who would treat us poorly. It speaks of a man or a woman who's been wronged and who easily has the power to avenge themselves and won't do it. You know, again, in this ancient culture, and I would say even our own culture, self-sacrifice, non-response to hostility is seen as weakness. For many, vengeance is a virtue. Yet, one who walks in the love of Jesus doesn't react. It doesn't repay evil for evil. You remember Peter came to the Lord and said, hey, Lord, just got a question for you. How many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? I was thinking seven times. Because the rabbis taught three, three times. It's like three strikes, you're out. If, you, if, you, if it's the fourth time, no, three is good. I forgave you. That's it. There's no more after three. Could you imagine if the Lord was like that with us? We, no, no one would be here today. But, but Peter says, hey, how about seven times, thinking, huh? <laughs> Come a long way. I don't know about the rest of these losers, but I, seven times. The Lord says, how about 70 times seven? Like, well, it's like 490 times. How am I supposed to remember that? You're not. Like, you're not supposed to remember it. it it's supposed to keep going. Long-suffering. And second, and interesting, Peter he was the one that wrote this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. Oh, so many examples of long-suffering in Scripture. I think of Jesus hanging from the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I mean, just the long-suffering of God, how patient he has been with us. Love is patient, long-suffering. Paul said not only the long-suffering of love, but the kindness of love. Love is kind. It's kind. The word kind means to be useful, serving, gracious. It is intentionally looking for ways to show kindness. Kindness is, again, one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's a byproduct of the Spirit's work in my life, seeking to be kind. The Bible exhorts us to put on kindness, reminds us that it's the Lord's kindness that leads us to repentance. And one of the characteristics of love is kindness. Now, it's one thing to tell someone, 
through your words that you love them, but it's quite another to express that you love them through acts of kindness. When our love is not only in word, but also through action. It's not just passive, but it is actively engaged in doing good toward others, especially doing good toward your spouse. Acts of kindness. What do you know? What does your wife appreciate? What does your husband appreciate? What blesses them? And you may have to think about that. Do I engage in that? Do I do that? Do I realize that? Kindness is a character and nature, again, of Jesus. He constantly was dispensing deeds of kindness to the lowly, to the needy, or with whomever he came in contact with. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good to all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. No doubt you are familiar with the phrase, actions speak louder than words. Many times within Christianity, it's, e it's easier to be good than to demonstrate being kind. Have you ever met a person who said they were a Christian? but you were surprised when they told you? You're like, what? And the reason you were surprised is because the whole time you had known them and watched them, they were not kind. No kindness flowing from their life. Always negative, always critical. Yeah, I'm a Christian too. Wow, that's surprising. The lack of kindness found in agape love. Are you kind to your spouse? I want to be kind. I need to learn that. And continue to grow in that. Love is patient. Love is kind. And Paul continues. But now he talks about the negative. Eight negative descriptions of what love is not. Here's what love isn't. So here's, if, I, if I'm walking in what I'm about to describe to you, I know that I'm not walking in love. That's the test. Love does not envy. It doesn't envy. Envy and love, they are mutually exclusive of one another. The contrast... They contrast each other. They don't complement one another. Someone said, if you are green with envy, it makes you ripe for destruction. Envy is the spirit of dissatisfaction and opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others as compared with your own. And there are two kinds of envy that seem to surface. One covets the possessions of others. Sometimes it's difficult to fight due to the sinful humanness we all battle in society today. Man, I tell you what, back in the day... Again, I'm dating myself. If you don't know what a camera is, like a real camera, uh, ask your grandma. I mean, we, we had these, you know, we had cameras. And like, if you wanted to show people like where you went, like you had to actually like take the film to a place. They have these places and you would take your film. You're like, what's, it came out of a camera and you take it and then you'd have to wait. Now, then it got really high tech when they like, oh, you could get it in a day. Oh, I can get it developed in a day. And then you get your camera, and then you get your little scrapbook or photo album, I guess they would call it. And you put, we, are, we have a garage full of photo albums. They're seriously heavy. And uh, we just organize them in the garage. I mean, these are packed. And you can't get rid of them because there's your children in there, you know? <laughs> and they moved out, and you have to remember what they look like, you know, and you have to keep them in there. So we have them all stacked up. Nowadays, you can just, you can, and, and, and if anybody's going to be envious, you'd have to take your scrapbook over to their house and say, check, that, check out where we went. <laughs> that's us here. That's us there. <laughs> yeah, see that? No one cares about that. But now it's like, I, oh, I hate them. Oh, oh, I'm just kidding. That's probably not this church. I, I can't even like, 
oh, I can't believe they had that for breakfast. Ah, 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 ah. You know, you're just so bummed out. You're envious. You're upset. And then you turn to your husband, why don't we ever do anything? <laughs> Took you to marriage retreat, girl. I mean, here we are. Check it out. We're here. We're here. Let's get some shots. Let's take some pictures. Let's make some people envious. No, you don't do that. You don't do that. That's not right. It's not right. Because love does not envy. Covetousness. Wishing that that person didn't have what they have. It's ugly. You think of the examples in Scripture of people who are envious. You think of Cain and Abel. Oh, Cain killed his brother. Why? He was envious. His sacrifice was received and his wasn't because he was in the flesh. I think of Joseph and his brothers. They're envious. Oh, man, that coat, that's messed up, man. How come he got a coat? We didn't get a coat. I can't stand it. You know, we should throw him in a pit and uh, say that he died. I mean, it's just terrible where envy leads. Horrible. Of course, you know how that story ended. Uh-huh. Joseph was so kind. Daniel, envied by the other wise men. He got promoted and they got demoted. And they said, the only way we're going to get this guy is if we bust him for praying. So let's get him busted and then like we'll write some stuff up and then we'll throw him in a lion's den and you know, that'll be the end of Daniel. I mean, that, that's envy. That's where it leads. When Jesus stood before Pilate, do you remember what it said? It says that Pilate knew that the religious leaders had handed him over because of envy. It's dangerous. Wherever, James said, wherever envy, selfish ambition exists, that disorder and every evil thing will follow. Are you envious? Are you covetous? Stop that. Ask God to forgive you of that. Stop being that way. Ask the Lord to change your heart in that way if you're coveting what other people have. Rejoice with those who rejoice, the Bible says. It's important. Love's, love doesn't envy. Also, it says that love does not parade itself. Another translation, love doesn't brag. This word for brag is not used anywhere else in the New Testament, and it means to talk conceitedly. It's the kind of talk that attempts to make others jealous. Love, love doesn't in any way parade its accomplishments. C.S. Lewis called bragging the utmost evil. You know, when we walk in pride, we take hands with the enemy. But when we walk in humility, we take the hands of Jesus. Jesus humbled himself, became a servant, set the example for us. And I think what allows us to remain humble is that we can't believe that we've been the recipients of such wonderful grace and love and salvation. It just keeps you in a, in a humble place. Listen, even on our best day, we fall short. And yet God loves us and, and, he, and he wants us to walk humbly. And, and, hum, and being humble and walking in humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. Let me just, you know, people say, oh, I'm so horrible. No, you're not, bro. You're, you're awesome, man. You're good. No, I'm not. No, you are. No, uh I'm not. No, seriously, you are. No, uh I'm so ugly. Come on, sis, you're not ugly. You know, and we're, we're, it's, it's false humility, which is also pride. It's not thinking poorly of yourself. It's not thinking, you know, too high of yourself. It's just not really thinking about yourself. It's just focusing your attention more on Jesus than on yourself. It also says that love is not puffed up. It goes along with it. It's not arrogant. And that would have been a real struggle for the gifted Corinthians, not to be arrogant. In fact, Paul would write to them earlier in this same letter in, in chapter 4, verse 7, and he said, who makes you differ from another? 
Just ask them a question. And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I mean, these testimonies that played for us today were so powerful, and every single one of them pointed to what Jesus did. There was no testimony saying, look what we accomplished. We got approved because of who we are. Hey, we got this because we, you know, no, it was all about the Lord. Giving praise, giving glory, giving honor to him. Listen, everything we have, from the beating of our heart to the breath that we breathe, it's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. That should keep me humble before him. The Bible says to walk humbly with your God. Love isn't arrogant. It's not inflated with its own importance. Love's main concern is not asserting itself. Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Yeah, you're nobody. I mean, honestly. <laughs> who is Jesus? That's what I want to be impressed with. Pride, when, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. Pride comes before destruction. Peter exhorts us in his first epistle, clothe yourself in humility. Put it on, man, like a garment. You know, there was a famous missionary by the name of William Carey, probably one of the greatest missionaries of all time. I mean, when, when he started, um, he was a great linguist, translating the scriptures into no fewer than 34 different Indian languages. And many people didn't like him when he came to India, of course, being a foreigner. And one evening, he sat at a dinner party with the governor general of India. And the governor sought to humiliate Carey in the midst of the people that were seated at the table. And in seeking to humiliate him, he said, uh, hey, weren't you a shoemaker before you were a linguist? As if that was some kind of diss. You made shoes. But William Carey responded, um, no, your lordship, not a shoemaker, only a cobbler. <laughs> in other words, I didn't make the shoes, I just repaired them. I mean, just taking the humble position. Later on his deathbed in 1834, he was visited by a Scottish minister named Dr. Alexander Duff, who while praying a prayer for William Carey at his bedside, kept calling him Dr. Carey, and oh Lord, for Dr. Carey, and he just kept praying, and, and after he was done, William Carey said, Mr. Duff, you have been speaking of Dr. Carey. When I am gone, say nothing of Dr. Carey, speak only of Dr. Carey's Savior. That's somebody who has an has a understanding of who they are in light of who God is. Somebody who lives close to the Lord. I think of J. Hudson Taylor, another missionary uh, who started the Inland China Mission. And when he was speaking to a crowd in Melbourne, Australia, he was introduced as our illustrious guest, Hudson Taylor. Loud applause. Taylor stood before the crowd very humbly and said, Dear friends, I am only a little servant of an illustrious master. It's a proper understanding. John the Baptist, I think, said it best. He must increase. I must decrease. When you're walking in love, you're, you're walking in humility. It also says here, notice this, love does not behave rudely. Verse 5. It's not rude. Have, have no concern for others to do things that represent a behavior that is contrary to the form and fashion and the manner that is proper concerning the love of Jesus. Behaving rudely, lack of tact or politeness. It carries the idea of behaving gracelessly, offensive, gracelessly and offensive. That's what, that's what it means. Love, love doesn't do that. Water. Love doesn't do that. It's not rude. 
are you rude? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> have you been rude? Don't raise your hand. We have. We've, we've, I've, I've been rude before, just insensitive. That was rude. That was rude. Like, when that happens, I realize, based on Scripture, I'm not walking in love. That's the flesh. You might be able to get your point across, but are you rude? If a person doesn't have the same opinion, and let's face it, man, in marriage, like, we see things differently than our spouse. We do. The way uh, I process things versus the way my wife processes things, totally different. You guys are, we're different than one another. And maybe what is a big deal to your wife, you're thinking, that's not a big deal. But to her, it's a big deal. And it better be a big deal to you. <laughs> if you want to survive. No, if you want to, if you want to continue to grow in your marriage. And then to your husband, it's like, why? What's your problem? Nothing. What's your problem? Oh, oh, I know what it is. You haven't eaten. <laughs> My wife says that I get hangry. It's true. It's true. So don't be rude. That's the exhortation. Because love isn't rude. And also, it does not seek its own. Oh, oh, here we go. It's not trying to gain its own rights, its own agenda, its own will, its own plans, its own way. One of the biggest struggles I think that we face so often in the marital relationship is not with the other person, but with ourselves. Ourself. Selfish. Oh, man, I, I, I don't realize that, but it's real. It's, it's a real thing. My time. Me time. When did that start? Me time. In the Garden of Eden, I guess, but, but it's sin. Yo, I just need some me time. I'm sorry. What, I, I, what proverb is that? It's not in there. It's not in there. We struggle. We've got conflicts. We get selfish. That's why I think the first thing that Jesus required for those that would follow him, remember what he said? Deny yourself. He didn't say, you know what? If you want to follow me, just love yourself more. Love yourself. Hug yourself. Tell yourself how awesome you are. You know, just pat yourself on the back and look in the mirror and say, I love you. You know, that, that's how you really, no, we love ourselves way too much. He said, you're going to have to deny yourself if you want to follow me. And that's a struggle. I, I realize that I don't die easily. <laughs> I'm very, very into self-preservation. The battle of selfishness. You constantly have to fight it, but Jesus is our example. In fact, Paul, in writing to the church in Philippi, he said, let each of you not look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is the, this is the mentality we're supposed to have to be a servant of one another, especially in marriage. It's hard. We, we, have the, we have the natural tendency to want to be served instead of serve. That's just natural. That's the, that's the flesh, and so I have to die to that. And, and sometimes in marriage, you have an expectation of being served. Maybe, maybe you, you know, you've, you've had a hard day and, and you come up from work. And maybe your wife's had a hard day and you haven't communicated yet. But you're driving home and you have an expectation. You're hangry. You didn't eat lunch. So you're anticipating that when you walk through the door, there's going to be something cooking. I'm confident that that's going to happen. And then you walk through the door and unbeknownst to you, your wife had a very hard day. Maybe she had to work or maybe she was home with the kids and she has a, a huge headache and she's on the couch watching Hallmark and you think, wait, why, where, what are we eating? 
And then you look in the fridge, and you know, you could make eggs in the microwave. I mean, what are, what are you going to do, you know? And then you're like, what? You, what? Hey. And then it's your chance to serve. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, I think, too, pastorally speaking, and I'm sure, but this applies to everybody, that, um, you know, our first job, whether you, you, know, you have a job, and hopefully you have a job, but, but you, you know, your first job and priority is to serve the people in your home. It's for me to put Michelle before myself. That's not, that doesn't come naturally to me. That's not very natural. Um, but it's something that God calls me to do and something that I have to die to and learn to die to. And sometimes I'm better at it than others. But here's what I found. When I end up doing the things I don't want to do, but it blesses my wife, I actually experience joy in that. There's a, because because that's where Jesus is. Jesus is a servant. He's, he's doing that. Those are his dishes. That's his yard. That's his thing. This is his. And just doing those things to the glory of God and as an act of worship changes my entire mentality and attitude. And, and I, I need that. And when I'm willing to partner with Jesus and serve like him and step into that role, because that's where he would be, I guarantee you. If he was in your house, what would he be doing? He'd be doing that. He'd be serving. Well, I don't, you know, I can't wash clothes. I mean, I can't, like, why? Why? Why can't you? I, because my hands, I mean, I can't. You know, what? Come on. <laughs> Did I mess up my golf swing? Come on. No. Uh, dishes? Oh, I can't. I can't take it from there and put it in the dishwasher. Why? It's like just right there. Just do it. Do it to, for Jesus. Would you do it for Jesus? Of course I would. Well, hello. It's his house. Pretty sure you should do it. I can't take the trash out. That's why we had children. You know, th this is... That's their job. So, where was I? Be the servant in your home. He also says, and we're almost through, I promise. Hang with me. Love is not provoked. Ooh, it's not provoked. It's interesting. It's where we get the English word paroxysm. Probably a word you use all the time, uh, paroxysm. But it, it means a convulsion or sudden outburst of emotion. Love guards against being provoked, easily irritated. You know, my wife and I, we were recently counseling a young couple that had been married coming up on two years. And it was so, it was great uh, counseling this couple as they were sitting there. I said, so hey, tell us, you know, what's, what's going on? You know, tell us about your marriage. And he goes, my, my wife is, is just too loud. <laughs> like, what do you mean like just... In, in, what, do you, what do you mean by loud? I mean like volume. Like she's, when she talks, it's very loud. He's super chill. He's super quiet. And she's just like, ah, you know. I mean, it's not like that. To him, to him, that's what it sounds like. She's just volume. Like he can hear across the church. He's just like. And he's just kind of, you know, he just, it's just so loud. And then I, I said, I said to, you know, the, we said to the wife, hey, what, what, what's your, you know, what do you think about him? Well, he just really doesn't communicate, you know, and I like to communicate. And um, so then after that, I switched it around. I said, hey, why don't you tell me what you really like about your spouse? Can you do that? It's been two years. Come, what, what, do you, what do you like about your spouse? And she said, you know, I just love his, his calm demeanor and, and how he listens to me. And... Um, <laughs> 
and he just, he's really, you know, listens to what I say, and, and <laughs> uh, I said to him, hey, what do you like about your wife? He goes, you know what I love about her? I just love her positive attitude. She's always encouraging. I said, do you know something? What's, can I just tell you what just happened right now? The very thing that you appreciate about your spouse, you now say is the thing that irritates you about your spouse. The very strength that you appreciate. You were made for each other. You are, you are meant to be. Because what she is, you're not. And what you are, she isn't. Wow, beautiful. And they were like, oh. I never thought of it that way. And it went well. But isn't that interesting how the things that you love about your wife or your husband, suddenly that is, stop doing that. That is so irritating. And I'm not going to go into those things. But you know, I don't have to spell it out for you. You know what it is. And my wife will say, hey, that, don't, don't do that. Okay, I, that irritates me. Sometimes I'll talk while I have food in my mouth or chewing something. I know, it's irritating. I know. Pray for her. For me, I mean, for me, come on. Stop that. Okay, sorry, sorry. Okay, hold on. So anyways, I was saying, you know, <laughs> found ways around it. I've grown. I've grown. Still growing. So it's not provoked. It doesn't retaliate. Are you, are you, are you like that? Are you short fuse kind of guy, girl? Like you just, you just blow up. Like you just easily provoke. Sometimes the provocation, sometimes what happens is there's a lot. Have you ever noticed this in your marriage? Imagine like a big wheelbarrow right here. This is me with a wheelbarrow. Imagine it. And there's all these things that have been filling up through the day. You know, it just this thing happened or that thing fell through at work and this thing's happened and that thing's happening. And maybe your wife's got one too. And and this, the kids are doing this, and I had to go down to school and get him, and I, he did this, and he didn't eat his lunch, and then he teacher said, I mean, you know, all these things are happening, and, and, and you, you, know, you come through the front door, and, and you've got all this you're carrying, and you haven't really communicated yet about what's going on in your day. It's just, it's all up in here. And then she says something completely unrelated to everything else, but it's like the thing was so full when you walked in, and it was like just that one thing just tipped the whole thing out. And it's like, and then you're, and, or vice versa. It can happen, men, women. And suddenly you're just pouring everything out. It has nothing to do with, with, with you know, basically you, you've, you've had all this going and then that thing just tripped the wire and you just, I have to guard against that. Make a conscious decision to be careful of that, to not be provoked. And, um, you know, the Bible says to respond with a, you know, a soft answer turns away wrath. If you ever have an intense moment of fellowship with your spouse, or an argument, or a disagreement, and it starts to escalate, try to bring in Jesus in the midst of it as sooner than later before it gets beyond. Sometimes it's hard. It just starts rolling. And you just, you know, you just start responding and you're, and re, you know, you're reacting rather than responding. There is a vast difference between reacting and responding. Responding is thinking it through. How am I going to respond? Listening in order that I might have the proper response. You know, if, if, you know, as a pastor, I must confess, you know, if my wife wants to tell me something, you know, and I'm like, Hey, yo, uh, you know, you have a Bible? Um, 
Open up. Just you don't need to tell me the rest. I know. I know. It's. I know the story. Uh, here's what the Bible says. You know, like you didn't listen. You didn't listen. Like my wife wants me to listen rather than just respond. And sometimes this is what I've learned. A little secret here. It's not a secret, but it's. It helps. You know, if your wife is filled with the Spirit, men, and and she needs to verbalize things, you know, just let her verbalize them without trying to fix it. We naturally want to fix it. The game's coming on in five minutes. Could you just let me, let me help you. Help, let me help you help you, okay? Wait. James chapter three, you know, like, no, 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 no. She doesn't want a pastor. She wants a husband. She wants a husband. She wants somebody to listen. And so what I found is that if, if Michelle is verbalizing something that's going on and, and she's saying it and she's working it through, she's working it through. It's coming out of her mouth back into her ears, through her heart. The Spirit of God is working. She's verbalizing it, and I'm just sitting there. Man, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm listening intently to what she's saying. The Spirit of God is working. She arrives at the answer and solution without me giving it. The Spirit of God's speaking to her. She knows the Word. The Word is, 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 is God is working in her life. And, and she has the answer and, and knows what to do. She just wanted me to, she, she knows the answer. She just wanted me to listen. And, and then if I say, hey, can I pray for you about that? Oh, that's a big W. Ding. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> victory, touchdown. You know, it's like, great, you listened. Wow, good job. Like, that's great. You're growing. You, know, you listened. And can I just say, men, listening is not turning the TV on mute. <laughs> Honey, yeah, what's up? I'm talking. Are you listening to me? I am. <laughs> what? Yes, of course. I. Yep. Yep. Oh my God. For sure. For sure. What did I say to you? What part? You know what part? <laughs> you got to just turn it off. And also there's this thing, you know, the whole phone thing sometimes. You know, you sit, you sit as a couple across from each other. You can text each other across the table from each other. Like, you know, and it's just, just learning to communicate is, is really important. It also says here, as we conclude here, it thinks no evil. It's not suspicious. Listen, we should be above reproach so that our spouse doesn't have to look over our shoulder and think we're, you know, doing something suspicious. We should never give off this deceptive uh, whatever. It thinks no evil. We should always assume the best about our spouse. That's really important. You know, we, but we should be above reproach. You know, we shouldn't have to hide anything from each other. Like, where's those receipts? What receipts? I don't, what receipts are you talking about? I don't, there, there wasn't a receipt. <laughs> then where'd all this stuff come from? It's a good question. It's a good question. I don't know. I mean, what? Come on. Like, we need to talk about this. We, we need to communicate. You know, we, we, we're one here. We're one as a couple. You know, when we, Michelle and I went to a premarital class as kids, you know, we, we went to this premarital class and, and the, the pastor got up and said, hey, listen, there was like a group of us in a class together. Young couples, man, just, you could cut the, the, the love in the air was so thick. It was like the glory, it was like, you know, when the Bible says that the, the glory of God filled the temple and the priest couldn't go in and minister, it was like our love in there. Everybody's just like... Ah, everybody's getting married. We're all making plans. We're going through our book together, taking notes. And it's just like, you know, it's just, it was beautiful. (laughs) 
and nobody knows what they're doing, but we all are excited about whatever's coming. And, and so the pastor said, hey, listen, I want you couples to know something. You are, God's called, the two shall become one. And that means you're one in everything. You're united, you're one. And there was this couple in the, in, in the meeting, in, in our premarital class. They were the, if you were to typify, they were like the typical gym couple. Like, like the gym. gym like they, this guy was just, came in a tank top, you know, no neck. Had to come through the door sideways. He's like, I'm exaggerating, but that's how I remember it. And, and she was just, you know, you know, just aerobics, you know, no doubt all the time. It's just, they were, they were that couple. They were that couple. I'll never forget it. He had kind of like a, like a mullet, you know, when they were in, they're actually coming back. I've been told, uh, but and he was there, and, and he raised his hand. I think it was this hand. He's like, excuse me. Teacher was like, and the teacher was just this little guy, you know, up there and drawing the board, and excuse me. Here's what he said. What about my money and her money? All the couples were like, oh. Gonna have problems. Y'all are gonna have problems. And he made it clear that it's not her money and your money, it's, it's our money. We're one. That's my car, woman. What are you getting in my car? Is it your car or is it Jesus' car? <laughs> Would Jesus let her drive his car? Yes. That's mine. Is it yours or is that Jesus's? No, that's yours. That is yours. I don't, I don't need to touch that. That's fine. You understand? Like, we just need to don't provoke each other. Love one another. Oh, then it says this. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. It, do, it doesn't rejoice when somebody hits misfortune or I told you so. <laughs> ha, I told you. What did I tell you? I told you not to do that and you did it. It doesn't rejoice in that. That's not love. It also says it rejoices in the truth. And it also says here that, look at this as we end here, it bears all things. That word means it protects others from exposure to ridicule and harm. It seeks to, to, to hold another person up rather than bring them down. It doesn't expose their faults and their failures and their shortcomings. And nothing's worse than being with couples. And um, well, I'm sure there's worse things, but it's figure of speech. When you're with a group of couples, and this has happened a few times, and, and somebody like a husband or wife starts talking about their spouse, like things that nobody in that circle should know, like, you just feel, uh, you don't, you're just awkward. Like you can't get out of it. Like, what do you do? Like, it's just out there. You're like, I can't believe you just said that about her, man. That's going to be a long drive home. And, and you know, the interesting thing is wives have this uncanny ability to speak with their eyes. Have you ever noticed that? Well, there's a look that you just go, oh, oh. And you're just like, oh, no, it's on. Oh, 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 that is frightening. <laughs> then there's another look that isn't like that. And you're like, oh, right. You know, but that's not, it's not that look. Ooh, bears all things, covers one another, upholds one another. It believes all things. 
It hopes all things. It doesn't give up expectation of coming good. It, it continues to believe. It hopes the best for your spouse. It, it believes the best. It, it, it wants to see them excel and, and succeed and grow and be everything that God uh, calls them to be. And then it says it endures all things. Oh, does it say all? Does that, does that mean all in the Bible? It actually does. All means all. It endures all things. You know, love, love it's actually, a, it's interesting. It's in a military term that's used of an army holding ground. Love, love hangs on to those that it loves. It endures, even in the face of opposition or hardship or trial, it, it hangs on. And it's in those things when we believe and hope and endure and, and we apply these things of love that, that our love grows deeper. It grows deeper. And then it says it never fails. It never fails. There's a lot of things that'll fail. But this kind of love, it says, does not fail. Guys, the only person that can produce this kind of love that is described here in 1 Corinthians is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not me thinking, all right, thank you, John. All right, I'm going to not be rude. I'm going to try to listen more, okay? I promise not to push the buttons, even though I know where all of them are. I'm, I'm not going to be selfish anymore. This is my last day of selfishness. <laughs> It's all about you, babe. You can't. I mean, you could try. You might last for till the next session, but, but the thing is, <laughs> till the retreat is over. Maybe you're already in the doghouse and the retreat's already happened. Not that you need to repent, get right, work it out. But, but, but you, the point I'm making is we, we need the Holy Spirit. You know, it's the fruit of the Spirit his love. And so as I yield myself to the work of the Holy Spirit and I allow the word of God to, to, to take root and change me and transform me, it's like, listen, James says we look at the Bible, it's like looking in a mirror. We just looked in a mirror and, and we got a reflection. What do I look like in comparison to what is described here? And I realize that I have room to grow. Lord, help me. Help me to be less like me and more like Jesus. Help me to walk in love, to put on love. And if we are willing to be teachable and we're willing to be willing, God can work in us. Teach us how to love. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your spirit that you said you would give to us to help, to enable, to empower us to do what we're incapable of doing on our own. Lord, thank you for your example of love, how greater love has no one than this than he laid down his life for his friends. You have laid down your life for us. Help us to lay down our lives for one another. Lord, where we have fallen short, Lord, where we have been selfish or we have been rude or we've thought evil or we've been suspicious or we haven't been kind, Lord, or patient. Lord, change us. Lord, sometimes we want, we want you to change our spouse, and Lord, yet you want to start in us. So Lord, have your way in us today. Thank you that you who begin the good work will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Continue to build, Lord, in our lives on this solid foundation, which is Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. God bless you.